The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. MSW Media. My issue is I can't endorse you. You will suck the life out of everything. Oh, come on, really? This is John Taffer from Bar Rescue, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. That's more like it. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. And I am pumped about this one. Coming up in just a little bit, our old pal John Taffer returns. I love me some John Taffer. And I particularly love me his show, Bar Rescue. I mean this. Bar Rescue is one of the best shows ever made. I can't get enough of it. When they have these marathons and they have them all the time, I'd go. I, I'll be sitting on my couch and be like, damn it, seven hours later, I'm still watching Bar Rescue. I, I, it, the conflict on that show just moves me. I mean, I, I, here, check this out. What's wrong with your attitude? Ain't wrong with my attitude. What's wrong with your attitude? What's wrong with my attitude is you. No, you're, you got you the owner attitude. who's losing $8,000 a month. It ain't because of me. And you're being an ass. It ain't because of me. Oh, I think it is. Oh, I think it's not. Well, I think it is. I think it's and not. And I know better than you. Well, that's your job. Exactly right. And I'm telling you, you're a piece of bartender yeah. with a lousy attitude. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're the best with a lousy attitude. That's okay. Now what? I got money now in my what? pocket. You so what? I got money in my pocket, you mother. Right, right. And that's John, man. That is that is him. That's not an act. I, I've gotten to know John a little bit and that's him, man. He is fearless. You just listen to it. If you watch this, that guy, they were face to face and the guy, that bartender was a big dude. And I'm like, ah, is this going to happen? Yeah. Exciting stuff. So uh, we'll have John out here in just a bit. If you're listening to this show on the day it dropped, which is September 26th, it's not too late to get in on a an auction that's happening. I'm going to say, if you like whiskey and you love money, and you're going to have to love money because you're going to have to have a lot of it to get in on this, but the Speed Art Museum, which I believe is in Louisville, Kentucky, they're doing a Art of Bourbon auction today, September 26, 2023, and it's featuring some of the rarest, most elusive, and sought-after whiskeys in the world. You go, if you want to sign up for this thing, it's it's going to be from 7.15 to 8.45 p.m. 
Eastern time. You need to go to artofbourbon.org to register. You can be online for free, but you have to register, okay? And that doesn't mean you have to actually bid on anything, but you can check it out. Some of the highlights of this thing, and this is why I'm bringing it up on the show. Craziness. Just absolute craziness. They got a pappy 23-year-old. And not just any pappy 23-year-old. The pappy 23-year-old. It's a unicorn. It's a 1998 bottle. It's the first year that Julian Van Winkle III went to market with the 23-year-old. And it's telltale green tinted glass and brandishing a gold wax top. They don't do that anymore. That's the only way you can, well, you can't be sure because there's great counterfeiters out there. But those that first run, that first year, green tinted glass and the gold wax top. That's how you know that that's one of the, the originals. This is probably the, uh, the highlight of the auction. They said that their estimate is going to go for about $30,000. Crazy. 30 grand. That's right. They're also going to be auctioning off a 20-year-old A.H. Hirsch that literally disappeared from liquor shelves more than a quarter century ago. Uh, This bottle represents a piece of history that's frozen in time. It was distilled in 1974 at the old Michter's Distillery, and it's most people in the know consider it one of the greatest bourbons that was ever produced on God's green earth. And they're saying 20 grand. That's what they're thinking they're going to fetch for that one. Uh, some of the others, an I.W. Harper Rye. This is a Prohibition era. They, you know, one of these dusty old bottles produced at the famed Burnham Distillery. It's not only unusual for being a product of Prohibition, it's one of the few I.W. Harper Ryes you will ever find at any age. This one was distilled in 1917 and bottled in 1927. They're thinking six to eight grand for this. All right, all right, all right. If you want to go in person, if you're in Louisville, uh, tickets are $300. That includes a cocktail hour, bourbon tastings, dinner, blah, blah, blah. But who's going to go at this? Unless you're there, you're, you're already going. But check it out online. Some of the other stuff, our friends at Rabbit Hole, you know them. They, they've they got a uh, select barrel pick, uh, the high gold bourbon in a highly coveted limited edition series of bottles. It's got Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland characters have been reimagined on these bottles. Six different label bottles, and they're estimating that's going to go for 25 to 30 grand. The Bardstown Bourbon Company Barrel Selection, one of the very first hundred barrels produced in the Origin Series single barrel release. The Origin Series, of course, represents the first whiskeys that were entirely distilled, aged, and bottled at Bardstown Bourbon Company. Had those guys on the show. It's been a few years. Love to have him back. Uh, yeah, if you've got 20K, you'll probably be able to get that. And anyway, sixth year for this. This annual bourbon auction draws serious bourbon aficionados, as you can imagine, that kind of money being tossed around and collectors from all over the world. And then there's people like me that, you know, it's like a spectator sport. I'm not buying any of this shit. I don't got that kind of money. But uh, it should be fun. And it's being led by my buddy, my old pal, Fred Minnick. Fred knows more about bourbon than anybody in the world. I will say that right now. He knows more than me. He knows more than you. And he knows more than God. Oh, behave. All right, maybe not God. Sorry, God. Don't smite me, please. What else is there to say about that? I don't know. Nothing else. Before we get to uh, John Toffer, let's do a a very abbreviated uh, uh, segment, uh, episode of our popular segment here. Why am I standing? Why am I talking like this? I'm not. Even drunk. I don't know what's going on here, people. 
It's drinks of the week. Drinks, drinks, drinks of the week. Drinks, drinks, drinks of the week. Drinks, drinks, drinks of the week. It's what we're drinking with Dan Dunn's. Drinks of the week. Jazz hands. All right, so I went to a dinner uh, a few weeks back here in the Los Angeles area, in the Mar Vista area, I guess I was, was uh, thrown by Fiddlehead Sellers. Fiddlehead Sellers is in Santa Barbara County, not too far away from here. And then they also have up in Willamette Valley in Oregon, which is, you know, further away from here. Kathy Joseph is the founder and winemaker, and she's an icon. She's a pioneer in the industry. She's from the Midwest, and I got to tell you, her roots, it comes through. Those Midwestern roots come through the honesty, the integrity, the work ethic, the wines that she crafts. I mean, she's making them in Santa Rita Hills, Happy Canyon, that's in Santa Barbara, and then in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Fiddlehead's just great wine. We had so many at this tasting. One, we had the 2012 Fiddlehead Cellars Lollapalooza Pinot Noir. And that was from the Fiddlesticks Vineyard in the Santa Rita Hills. This is 100% Pinot Noir, aged in uh, barrels with 36% new French oak. Just a delicious, delicious Pinot. I mean, the perfect body, perfect balance. The fruit comes through, but it's got some serious spine to it. It's one of the best Pinot Noirs you're going to get in these United States. I mean that. 2012 Fiddlehead Cellars Lollapalooza Pinot Noir, $88 a bottle. Now, if you want to do something from from Fiddlehead's Oregon collection, the 2012 Oldsville Reserve, that's from the Willamette Valley, another 100% Pinot Noir. Oh, boy. I mean, this one, I would say it's a little bit on the lighter side, but by no means is it a flimsy wine. It's such a drinkable wine. It's such a a wine that just meshes with almost any dish you're going to put it with. I mean, it is a food-friendly wine. 13.8% alcohol on this. The acidity is really nice. Just, again, I keep saying balance, but that's what Kathy does. That's what she's known for, is making these lovely, well-balanced wines. And that one's going to go for $60. That's the Oldsville Reserve from uh, Oregon, Fiddlehead Cellars. And then one more I'll tell you about that I just really loved was their uh, Gooseberry Sauvignon Blanc, which she makes in the Happy Canyon region of Santa Barbara. 100% Sauvignon Blanc, uh, sourced from old vines at the Star Lane Vineyards. If you know anything about that area of Santa Barbara County, Star Lane Vineyards just a legendary tract of land for producing wine. It's, it's, it's whole cluster press, cold fermented, no oak influence on this wine, no skin contact, no extended maceration and no malolactic fermentation. A lot of no's here, but you know what's yes? The freaking flavor is a big yunk and yes. Hunkin? Yunkin? I've lost my ability to speak. Bright fruit, racy acidity, it was uh, you know, it was stainless steel. Like I said, no barrel on this one. Thirteen uh, percent alcohol. Only three hundred forty-eight cases of this made, and it's forty-two dollars a bottle. Fiddlehead Cellars. If you are not familiar with it, if you've not tried it, I implore you to do yourself a favor and get in on it. Again, I mean, Kathy Joseph. She is as good as they get, and her wines are world class. And remember. When you get these wines, the key thing 
is to enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink. The years go by as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Recently, we did a podcast all about tequila with Phil Rosenthal, host of the hit Netflix series Somebody Feed Phil and a man known for having great taste. Out of all the tequilas we tried, Nosotros Madera Tequila Añejo was Phil's clear favorite. Don't believe me? Here's a clip. And I think of everything we've tried today, we've been through them all. My winner today is Nosotros. That'll teach you not to believe me. Nosotros Tequila was founded by Costa Rican immigrant Carlos Soto and his partner, Michael Arbonis. In their first year, Nosotros Blanco won double gold and best tequila at the top spirits competition in the world, the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. Nosotros Madera Tequila Añejo is aged in white oak barrels for 21 months. It's certified 100% additive-free, so all of the incredible flavors are from their signature blend of Highland and Lowland Agave and their distilling aging process. You can find Nosotros Signature Black and White Label, look for the toucan, at all liquor stores or online at nosotrostequila.com. I love Nosotros. Phil Rosenthal loves Nosotros. So what are you waiting for? Get in on the love. Get yourself some Nosotros and get it now. Fall is here, my friends. You know what that means. Time to fall for some fresh Victor. Fresh Victor. You know, you've heard me talk about it a million times on this show. You can buy the best spirits in the world, make craft cocktails at home, but if you use crappy mixers, you can get crappy drinks. And that's why we here at What We're Drinking are all about Fresh Victor. Fresh Victor is a line of all-natural, clean-label cocktail mixers bring the magic of master mixologists into your home. How do they do this? Because one of the guys that created it, H. Joseph Ehrman, my dear friend, is a master mixologist. He owns one of the best bars in the country, Elixir, up in San Francisco. So he brought all of his years and years of expertise in working with mixers into creating Fresh Victor. And what he created is a bunch of unique blends with contemporary flavors designed to suit any palate. All of their ingredients are fair trade sourced, no artificial anything. Mixers are produced at 100% solar-powered juicing plant with no waste. Right now, Fresh Victor is offering a fall special exclusively for listeners of what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. You go to FreshVictor.com, put a bunch of mixers in your shopping cart, and at checkout, enter promo code FVDAN20, get 20% off your order. Now's the time to treat yourself to the very best mixers on the market, and that's Fresh Victor. Joining me now, entrepreneur, philanthropist, New York Times bestselling author, a highly sought-after business consultant, member of the prestigious Nightclub Hall of Fame, and for the past decade plus, this gentleman has entertained the masses as the creator and host of the wildly popular reality television show, Bar Rescue. Always great to see my friend John Taffer. How you doing, buddy? Good to see you, Dan. Great to be with you. Great to see you, man. And uh, this is an exciting time. You, you've always got so much going on, John, but the, the latest thing 
is you've got yourself a, a new uh, bourbon called Taffer's Brown Butter Bourbon. I just was drinking it over the weekend, digging it big time, man. But let, why don't you tell us a little bit about it, how it came about and and, and all of that good stuff. It, it's, you know, I, as I sit here, Dan, I never thought I'd be in the bourbon business. This wasn't a plan, uh, no strategic approach, nothing. I, because of Bar Rescue now, I've done 240 episodes. We got to come up with five cocktails for every episode. And how many freaking old fashions can we do? So we're always trying to be creative and come up with things. And I got great mixologists around me who every week who helped me do all this. And I was walking through my Taffer's Tavern in Alpharetta, Georgia, and they were cooking brown butter at the moment. And I took the brown butter and I poured it into a sous vide plastic bag. And then I topped it off with whiskey, sealed it, put it in a water oven at about 180 degrees and let it boil in that water for about four hours. I took it out of the water, put it in a walk-in refrigerator, let it coagulate, skimmed it off the top. Then you're going to smile. I poured it through a coffee filter. Nice. And we had browned butter bourbon and it was a little cloudy. And it was a dairy product, so it certainly wasn't shelf-stable. It was a dairy product, so it would, ha- it would expire. Uh, uh, and we put it in a cocktail called the Campfire Cocktail. And we started selling over 1,000 a month of these Campfire Cocktails. People went crazy for this. And, and uh, so we're constantly now sous-viding more brown butter and more whiskey. And we're well, what I, wait, wait, let me go back here, though, John. You're just This wasn't something that you were planning. You're just walking through the kitchen. You smell this, and then... All of that just came to you. That's years of experience at work right there, my friend. I guess it is, buddy. I guess the the aroma hit me. And, you know, sometimes I'm in creative mode where I'm really sucking in all the things around me for ideas. Sometimes I'm in more like operational mode, if you will, where I don't necessarily notice all those things. And I was in a creative mode because I was thinking about these episodes and new co- and the scent of that brown butter, you know, that it's got a vanilla, caramelly, oh, nutty, yeah. you know, it just, man, it's a sexy smell, if you will. And then when we we, we, we put it and, and the cocktail was so successful, then I started realizing, you know, brown butter, butter is something that we treat ourselves to, right? Butter is luxurious. Butter is, you know, special. You can put butter in an apple pie and it's better. You can put butter in a vegetable. It's better. You can put butter on a steak. So I realized that I had a flavor profile that might just be incredibly mixable. So I made up some pint bottles. I sent it to a bunch of my mixologists. So they said, hey, buddy, do me a favor. Play with this. And they all played with it. And every single one of them said, John, the mixability is unbelievable. So we're making espresso martinis with them and off the charts. You know, we're doing a a, a um, spice pumpkin martini with the brown butter bourbon. It un- they're unbelievable. And we found that its mixability in cocktails like an old fashioned are obvious, right? A brown butter old fashioned. Uh, you tried the product, that aroma, that nose, that flavor profile works really well on the rocks and that, that type of format. But we found it goes great with some things you wouldn't think like pineapple juice. Man, it's like satin. It's unbelievable in pineapple juice. Making a note here, pineapple (laughs) Then we went into this tropical cocktail direction. And then we went, you know, in in martini directions. And we just found that it was that flavor profile was just remarkably mixable. Then I said, that's it. You know, we got to bring this to market. 
And, and, you know, then we went we went into the flavor houses and worked it and perfected, of course, to make it shelf stable and all of that. And uh, then we took a uh, two four year bourbons. One was a little high in rye mash. One was particularly low in rye mash. And we started blending those to try to create a backdrop for the brown butter bourbon. I wanted it to be 80 proof. I didn't want it to be 70 like some other flavored whiskey. So I wanted it to have the, the ability to mix well. And I wanted the bourbon to have some substance to it, but not overpower. And then the last thing I wanted, and I'm going to ask you if you think I got these things, was I wanted the whiskey to hit you in the beginning and stay there with you to the end, that I didn't want it to be too sweet and too overwhelming. And I felt that if I could achieve that, then mixologists will embrace it and and really have some fun with it. And and I think I did. I I think you got it, man. I'll tell you how what happened with us was I – I went out and watched some football on Sunday, and then I had a few people come back to my house, guys and gals, came back here to watch the late games, and we were playing some darts, and I was like, oh, and I had this sitting out, because I need, you know, and oh, what's this? And crack it open. We were drinking it on the rocks, just drinking it over some ice, right? And and I mean, again, men, women, both getting in, and everybody was really, really enjoying it, and what it evoked, it felt perfect, because made me it evoked feelings of fall for me certainly and it just yeah. and here's football on the tv and you're drinking you're thinking this is the kind of thing a thanksgiving dinner you have that out you can make you can make some specialty i noticed on the website you've got some cocktail recipes up there i recommend people go and check that out but this is the kind of thing that's going to be really popular i think at sort of holiday get-togethers because it's the kind of bourbon that's very accessible. It's different. It's flavored. But it also, as you said, it's got backbone to it. It's got substance to it. It's not a flimsy. Let's right. face it, man. You and I are in this. We do. We taste some shit. You you live in Vegas. I, I mean, I, I've well, talked about this numerous times on the show where I've been to WSWA, <laughs> uh, the Wine and Spirits Wholesale Association. And you go out there on the floor and you start tasting stuff. And you, what were these people thinking? And how do they sell? How do they sell this? <laughs> how do they sell it? And that's usually in the realm of flavored. I've I've encountered that more often than yeah. not with flavor. And I'm being straight yeah. here yeah. with flavored whiskeys. More often than not, I haven't liked them. This one. I would look at you. Look at you. What you done? You got me hooked on this stuff, man. And it's. <laughs> I'm telling you, I really, really like. It's. I got. I'm, I'm. I got like probably a quarter of a bottle left, and it's great for just. I just like sipping on it. Put a little ice on it. But I'm gonna dive in and do more cocktails as well. Ah, uh, that's. We'll send you a couple also that we're working on. We're really having some fun with it. I love that. Uh, also, it goes incredibly well in coffee. Anything with coffee. You know, that butteriness, that that hint of vanilla uh, works really, really well in coffee. So even try it in a cup of coffee later. Do that. Yeah, start my day off. Oh, sorry. I'm just kidding, everybody. (laughs) Now, when you talk about you're doing the the mash, so everybody knows when we're talking about the mash bill in a bourbon, it's got to be 51% corn. And then you've usually got other grains in there. You've got, as John mentioned, you've got rye, you've got barley. When you went with the high rye mash bill and the low rye mash bill, my first thought was, why not just cut the difference right in the middle and just go with one? So what went on there? It was just gave us an opportunity to try different percentages at different levels. Yeah. And to really have the palate experience it. Right. And then we could layer the flavor on top 
and really see how was the backdrop. Did it disappear a little bit? Was it strong? Because rye has a, has a pretty powerful element to it, right? So we didn't want to step on the flavor or the whiskey. And we certainly didn't want to produce a rye. We wanted to produce a bourbon. So I think it just took us through a process of tasting then th- th- that made us uh, uh, feel better about the landing place. When you're going in, John, do you have a very specific flavor profile in mind where you go, I got to figure out to get how I'm going to get there? Or is it more of a wide berth where you say, let's mix and match a little and see what happens. And then you know it when you know it and go, that's it right there. Yes, but we create boundaries. So for example, these are the things that I don't want to be. I didn't want to be too nutty. Right. I'm brown butter. I'm not hazelnut. Okay. Right. And it's very easy to move it too much in a nutty kind of direction when you do flavor. I didn't want it to be too sweet. I didn't want it to be too overwhelming. I didn't want the flavor to linger on your tongue past the point of the whiskey. So there were certain things I knew I didn't want it to have. And then there were certain things that I did want it to have. I wanted to have the smoothness of, of the brown butter. I wanted to have some of the smokiness of the brown butter. And then the vanilla hints, the caramel hints. So we took a look at that. Then we started to taste and play within that spectrum, if you will, okay. of flavors. I'm excited about it. Now, how much, what are we talking about here? How much a bottle? Oh, we're coming in now at, at 35, 34 95 a bottle, which we think is very reasonable. Remember, she's 80 proof. And where are we at distribution wise? We we're all over the country. We're, we're- so, nope, nope. We just launched in Las Vegas okay. right now and Boston. And, and Boston. I got to say, we're doing really well and we're scheduled to go national next year. That's fantastic. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier, uh, you're talking about Taffer's Tavern. So, I want to get, I want to touch on that. It's the other things you're doing, but I also want to talk about Bar Rescue. I was, I put on the craziest, you just Google and you, you go into YouTube, the craziest moments on Bar Rescue. And, and it's, it's so great. And, and what I found, it's funny for me, John, is I generally don't like too much conflict. When, when, and that's the bread and butter of reality TV, right? If, if I'm watching any of these shows and I always kind of cringe, oh, if, they, if I'm watching Below Deck, oh, this guest's an asshole. I don't know if I want to watch this. They're going to treat this. But for some reason, Bar Rescue, I cannot get enough of watching when shit blows up on your show. So I, I thought about it after I watched the clips. I go, why is that? And here's what I've landed on. And you tell me if you think this is why the formula works so much. The way the show's produced, put together, you really set these people that you, that you tend to have the conflict with up as they've got it coming. But what I think it is, is you seem to care more about the bar and the success of the bar than they do. And I feel that's genuine with you, knowing you like I do. I don't know you that well, but is that why I don't cringe when I watch you get in their face? Because I'm kind of like, yeah, give it to them. Yeah. Boy, boy, you know, I I didn't look at it exactly as the way you put it, but I think you nailed it, Dan. Let Let me give it to you in my words for a moment. Sure. Let's say it's your bar. And I show up, I only get like a 60 second briefing before I go in. I know very little. I haven't been in a bar before. I haven't met anybody before. I haven't looked at any casting reels, none of that stuff. So I'm cold. So they're going to tell me, okay, dad owns the bar with his wife. They're ready to kill each other. They're about to lose their house. They have two kids at home. He's in debt, $300,000. He has enough money to last two more months. I can go in there with the attitude that I'm going to, when I walk in and see the mess or whatever the hell I walk into, buddy, I can walk in and I can say, okay, I'm going to fight and I'm going to go at Dan. Yeah. But that's destructive. 
I say when I walk in, in my own mind, I'm going to fight for his wife. I'm going to fight for his kids. See, I have to have something to fight for, not something to fight against. A lot of reality shows, the fight is just for the sake of the fight. (laughs) There's no purpose at the end. There's no objective at the end. There's no constructive nature of it at the end, Dan. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Me, at least when I go crazy, there's a purpose. We're going to fix this. We're going to make it better. And when we do, aha, there was a purpose here. That's it. (laughs) So, So I think that's really critical. So when I'm in there, and this is so important to me, I'm always fighting for something, not against something. Okay. And that's what inspires me to fight so hard. Well, and I also think part of it too is we, you know, we come from similar, you're, you're New York, I'm Philadelphia. There's a sensibility that goes there. You ran one of the, the biggest clubs in the world, which outside of Philadelphia, which puts you pulsations. on the, the pulsations. I think part of it too, for instance, example, when I was watching the clip earlier, there's the one, and I'm sure you're going to remember it when you're in, you're in there and this guy, he's a meathead. He's got, the, you know, he's got the tank top on and his wife's a bartender and he keeps saying, telling her to fuck off says it a couple of times and this was a big dude you remember the one i'm talking about i do and you came in and you said you say that one more time you say that to her one more time we're dragging your head and then this guy went crazy you know but you didn't back down i love it yeah there's the example dan i was fighting for her not against him i think that's a great example of what i'm talking about i also find that the big burly guys like that actually fall the easiest because they're not used to somebody confronting them like I do walking in their face, staring in their eyes and challenging them. This doesn't happen to them very often, you know, being the size and, you know, and and the stature that they present. So I find when I do it, uh, uh, they sometimes snap into line a lot quicker than the smaller guy. Interesting, (laughs) but not always. There was the other, there was the other one that was the infamous (laughs) one where you're outside and you're in the car and you're watching and this is like, I guess uh, this might even be pre-stress test. This is when you're observing what's happening in the bar. Recon. And the guy, he was a, a very large African-American man bartending. I know you're going to remember this one. And he goes around the bar to confront a patron and he's getting into it with him. And, he, and then you came in and that one pushing and shoving ensued. Yes. Are you ever worried someone's going to sucker punch you in the face? You know, I've run bars my whole life, Dan, and, 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 you know, I've always had a doorman or two around me per se, but the first six seasons or so of Bar Rescue, I had no security. It <laughs> was just crazy. me and my crew, but I've always, you know, dealt with people and I've learned how to deal with people from dealing with confrontations like this in a bar. You know, when I ran a Troubadour, I remember when they were pogoing on the floor when Black Flag was paying oh, and they yeah. were spinning chains. And, and you know, I've dealt with all of those kinds of things and those kinds of fights and those uh, as a bar manager. So I'm not easily intimidated. And I find if I really come in strong and hold my ground, I can avoid the physical aspect of it most of the time. Have you ever finished rescuing a bar? My job is done here, as you say. And you 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 go, but when you walk out the door and go, why the hell did I help those assholes? <laughs> oh, probably, <laughs> where, they're, uh, where they're not repentant, yeah. really. And you and, and maybe yeah. you think to yourself, they're gonna fuck this up. There's only so much you can do. I can tell you, uh, uh, yes. Uh, there was one, I, I I can't remember the name of the, there was one in particular one where this guy was a real jerk. He had a country Western bar we were in Nashville, I believe it was. He was an incredible jerk. And I fixed his bar and I fixed him with his staff and I sobered him up and I put all this. And now the cameras were finished and I'm sitting at the bar with, of all people, his father. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, well, 
you know, I think I set your son up for success and uh, I'm feeling pretty good. And the father looked at me and said, oh, fuck it up. (laughs) (laughs) So 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 not only have I felt it, but I've had other people, you know, have the same sentiments when we're finished. You can feel it, Dan, when you leave. Uh, You know, what I'm proud to say is about 70, 80 percent of the time, I know that I've made a difference. They walk different. You know, their posture changes a little bit. Their facial expression changes. You know, they they get more confident and they're more purposeful in what they're doing. And you can actually see it sort of happen before your eyes. It's incredibly inspiring for me when it does. But as much as there's those ones that you walk out where you almost say oh, you can't fix stupid, right? This guy's going to. But then there's those the majority of the ones where you walk out and you say to yourself, holy shit. You know, I changed this guy's world. You know, he's he's hugging his wife. They weren't even talking to each other two weeks ago. And quick story. I'm doing one in Orange County, California. It's a Hispanic couple. His name was uh, Juan Pablo and her name was Edith. And producers, when I sit down to get my 60 second briefing, tell me that the husband isn't coming home till four or five in the morning. The wife thinks he's cheating. They're losing a fortune in this bar. They're about to lose everything. You know, she's besides herself. So I say to my producers, let me do recon with the wife. Call the wife. Get her here. I want her to sit in the car with me. So Edith, the wife, gets in the car. And when she gets in the car, she's got a little gift bag with her. You know, a little shiny gift bag. And she gets in the car and I introduce myself. Hi, Edith. I'm John Taff. I'm here to help you. What's that? She goes, it's a it's a gift bag. I said, what is it for? She goes, it's my anniversary. It's my 14th anniversary. I said, oh, is that for your husband? She goes, yes. I said, what did you get him? She goes, divorce papers. Oh, man. That's how it started. I, I did not know this was coming. Then we watch on the monitor her husband in the bar and some young girl walks up to him and says, are you married? And he goes, there's no ring on this finger. And, oh. and she's watching this with me. So the veins dead are popping out of her neck now. She's besides herself. So I look at her. I say, Edith, listen, this is your chance. I'm here. I got your back. If ever your husband needs to understand that today is a new day, you're not going to tolerate this anymore, that this is a new Edith. It has to be now. So you have to have the courage to go in there and make your husband understand that you are not going to accept this anymore and understand I've got your back and I'm going to help you get through this. She says, okay, gets out of the car, slams the door, goes inside the bar, rips his shirt open, punches him in the mouth, and th- throws a drink in his face. And the episode was on its way. That's bar rescue, man. <laughs> that is the man. <laughs> at the end of the episode, I'm sitting outside with the two of them at a table in front. And we're doing that sort of a sit down that we have at the end of the episode. And uh, uh, she puts her wedding ring back on and tears up the divorce papers. And Juan Pablo, this big, tough guy breaks down to tears and when i left that bar uh, he hugged me and said to me you're the father i never had i needed i needed to get my ass kicked thank you so much and he hugged me the end of the story is uh four or five months later i get an email they're having another baby and they're doing great that's that's bar rescue and you know those are the ones that if you have three jerks that one is worth it and to get you past the next three jerks. I won't, I won't lie. I'm man enough to admit this. I've been moved to tears numerous times watching Bar Rescue. You mentioned the big guys. One of the other, one of my favorites is there was this little guy. I'm trying to remember where it was. He, he had an accent, but I can't place what it was. But he, he was so bad. At one point, he called his kitchen manager Fat Boy. You remember this? Yes. His name was Ami. Ami, that's Ami. right. He says he was a little guy, but he was a tough son of a bitch. He, he wasn't was afraid. Israeli. 
He's he was Israeli. an Israeli military right. officer. He called him fat boy, and then that guy comes over, gets in his, and then you get up there, and he wasn't backing down, and this guy looked like he was about five foot five, 140 pounds, and he's like, I'm going to kick some ass. <laughs> did that bar make it? I, I can't imagine it, it did. did. It it's did. still there. That's it's crazy. It's still there. And Ami and I are friends. Matter of fact, he came back and did recon for me as a guest some episodes later. Oh, no That's kidding. an example of sometimes the ones you fight with the most, you wind up with the best relationships in the end because you've been through so much together. Got it. Now, when you, you've got your own line, of, uh, you've got your own Taffer's Taverns going up all over the place. Have you ever yeah. walked into a location and you're like, man, this place is too, too messed up, but it's a great location and thought, hey, could I buy you out of here? <laughs> Put a Taffer's Tavern? Because <laughs> some of these places are, I remember one was in the rodeo then. It was at San Antonio or whatever. Yeah. They did a, yeah. The guy was a lawyer. And he was a bit, he was a screwed up. I think it turned out well at the end, but I remember thinking to myself, this would be a good location for one of your bars. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've often thought that, but I have a complete separation for television. You do, you do. You so I won't have any financial interest in them. I, I won't offer any finance. You know, I don't want anybody to say Taffer caused them to fail so he could buy it cheap. Now, when you're not rescuing bars, John, do you, do you ever like to just go to bars? And if you do, like, what kind of bars do you like to go to? Do you like the high-end craft cocktails? Do you like the dive bars, the hotel bars? A, a, a little of all. You know, I think the ho hotel bars are great because I appreciate the scene that they need to create to draw their hotel guests. You know, we use the term in the hotel business to capture. You know, what is their capture strategy? What is their capture rate? How do they do it? I dissect the business, Dan. So I'll sit in a hotel bar understanding that they get feeder markets and what cities are feeding their hotel. And do they have the right products to, for their feeder markets? And I'm analyzing the whole thing. Then I'll go into a dive bar, which I love, because then I really get the flavor of the local community. You know, and, and 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 really get the feeling for what the town is like and what products they drink and what beers they have and talk to people. And that's great. And then you know, I love going to a nightclub and then you're seeing, you know, how are they dressed in a nightclub? You know, the women in jeans or are they in skirts and heels and, you know, guys wearing jackets or are they dressed in T-shirts? And, you know, what music are they reacting to? And, you know, what is their spend? Are they spending a lot? Are they spending a little? Are they drinking enough? Are they this? I remember years ago in Mall of America, I had Alamo Grill and I was involved in Alamo Grill and, and another concept uh, uh, called Original Sports Bar there. And I remember that when they opened Mall of America, they, 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 there were 57 restaurants under one roof. And uh, we looked at all and I opened the last concept that was called Gators and it was a Florida beach theme bar. And I looked at all 57 concepts and I said to myself, there's not one concept in this mall that targets women. So I created a concept. All the colors were feminine. The ladies' room was a freaking palace. The men's room was a freaking outhouse. <laughs> I'm serious. This place was a paradise for women. We ran 80% women and were hugely successful. Uh, uh, um, my point is that, that, that concepts are what they do. And uh, I learn from every different style and different concept that I go to. If I was not in an absorption mode, if you will, and I just wanted to go party, I'm more a local bar kind of guy. And you got a lot of that in Vegas, which is interesting. People don't think it. that way, but Vegas, you get off the strip. You get out. Great I mean, bars. they've got, I mean, world-class craft cocktail bars, but also some just phenomenal dive bars as well in that area. One more thing I want to tell you. This is something I didn't know when I told you previously. You and you were responsible for creating NFL Sunday ticket. How did this, how did this happen? This is actually a fascinating story. Okay. It's 1995, maybe late 94. And I got a phone call from a company called ComSat. 
ComSat was a Maryland-based satellite communications company. They had acres and acres of uplink and downlink dishes, and they managed all the satellites in the sky. So you can put a satellite up there, but they're going to manage all the airwaves and everything for it. They came to me and they said, can your company do, because I had one sports bar operator of the year and was pretty high profile. They came to my company and said, can you do a feasibility study for out-of-market sports programming? In other words, that you in Miami, John, could buy the Dallas Cowboys signal pay a fee for it and watch that game and that bars could do that and buy local games from other markets. We said, okay. So we went and we did a little feasibility study and we started to determine, you know, margins of bars and we pulled hundreds of bars and put together financial analyses and, you know, how many bars could benefit from a program like this and, and, and uh, 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 what would bars pay? Could they pay $4 a seat? Could they, this, could they, that? So we put the feasibility study, got paid a lot of money for it and gave it to ComSat. They came back right after that and said, this is great. We think we want to do this. Give us another document. Define the product for us. How would we sell it? How would bars and restaurants market it? You know, what materials would they need? How do we support them? How do we turn this into a meaningful subscription? So as we're writing that document, something happened called compression. And back in those days, Dan, you remember sports bar. If I wanted to have all five football games, I had to have five of those huge analog dishes. That's right. I needed a half an acre behind my bar for these, you know, freaking dishes back there. Yep. So to have seven games at once, I needed seven of those freaking dishes. Compression allowed one transponder to receive multiple games. It changed the world. It meant that any bar could put a small format dish on the roof of their strip center, whatever it was, with one transponder and receive seven or eight games simultaneously. That happened while we were writing a program study. So we wrote the rest of that, put it together. Comstat came back to us a third time and said, now give us a list of who to sell it to. We did that. Comstat then took my feasibility study, our programming document and sales document to the NFL to license the signal. NFL said, this is great. Let's do it ourselves. They put me on a board of NFL enterprises for three years and we turned it into Sunday ticket. It's amazing. It's it's crazy when you think about all the little things in football. I mean, football is so massively popular and it's stuff like this guys like you who did this. I also go, I don't know how these, the NFL should send these guys each a billion, but the guys who created fantasy football. Oh, unbelievable. I mean, you could argue certainly in the top three or four most influential groups of people in NFL history, because absolutely, I know people that had no interest in football, none. And now, but so now they're doing fantasy they're in and they're in a bar and every damn game in the country is on that thing. And you had, a, you had, you were the guy that made that happen. Pretty incredible. So, uh, all I guess I can say is, well, you're making me feel bad about myself. I feel like I'm not doing enough in my life. Ah, um, you know, it's interesting. You never know what's going to happen. I got to tell you a funny story. Years ago, uh, um, I was giving a speech in Las Vegas and somebody, somebody comes up to me and says, John, you should be on television. So I go back and I write something up over the next three or four days called On the Rocks. And it's a cross between Kitchen Nightmares and Mission Impossible. So I envision they're going to drop me in a bar or a restaurant. I'm going to pull out those files. I'm going to pull out my experts like the beginning of Mission Impossible. And then I'm going to go rescue this bar. And I put this thing together and I call my friends. I had a couple of friends at Paramount because I had worked on Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. And I had done some work for Paramount over the years. So, so I call them up. I say, can you do me a favor, guys? Can you put some TV people in a room? I want to ask a favor. I want to come in, pitch my idea. If you guys think I'm nuts, just tell me so. 
So I go into the room. They got the TV guys in there for me. I pitch in my idea and the head of television for Paramount looks at me and I'll excuse my language. I'm going to give it to you verbatim. Looks at me and says, John, you will never fucking be on television. You're too old. You're not good looking enough. It'll never freaking happen. And then I drove out of the Paramount gates and and I said to myself, shit, I'm the only person really who can say no to me. I can still try. So I shot my own sizzle reel, sent it to four different companies, got four offers, negotiated the best one. It was on TV in less than a year. And now talk about full circle. What network am I am? Paramount. (laughs) Incredible. And I mean, and you are always on there. I mean, they run bar rescue marathons. It's everywhere. I mean, the show is everywhere. You couldn't avoid it if you wanted to. And you, and why would you want to? It's funny you say that, John, you're giving me some hope because earlier in my career, you know, I've been doing this a long time too. And I was writing for Playboy and all this other stuff. Yep, yep. Anytime they, they talked about doing a drinking show, the problem was no one would want to do a drinking show. It just wasn't, they were afraid of it, you know, and they would, but anytime they tried, I would be one of the guys that they'd go, yeah, let's get this guy. He's good looking enough. Sure. He's got a little bit of a personality. Let's put him on. Yep. And uh, recently I reconnected with a producer friend of mine who I'd pitched a show with about 10 years ago. And I had this other idea for a show and I went to him and he said to me, okay, but here's the thing. We're going to probably need to get somebody uh, younger than you. You can produce, you'll be the producer, but we need somebody younger to host. I said, what the hell, man? It's my idea. Well, it's tell my, him my story, Dan. So I'm going to be, you know what? You and fuck him. I'm going to go do it myself. <laughs> uh, listen, John Taffer, it is, it's such a pleasure to see you, man. And it's always great to talk to you. Taffer's Brown Butter Bourbon is now available in Las Vegas and Massachusetts, but coming everywhere soon. What's, what, what, when's the new seasons, next seasons of Bar Rescue? What do we got? Right after football. We always start up right at the end of football. So early February, new season starting. I'm shooting it right now. So we're going all over the country shooting. And and uh, it's going to be a heck of a season. I got to tell you, Dan, it's a crazy freaking season so far. You ever need an expert on there, John? You know, am I too old? So no, I think you're perfect. Matter of fact, I'm gonna re- we're going to follow up with you. I'd love to have you come do Recon with me. It'd be a lot I would, of fun. I would love to do it, man. And when I watch the show, I find myself doing it in my head. I'm like, look at this shit. I would be- well, <laughs> we're going to do that. Promise. Tap you we're on the make ba- that happen. I'll, I would love to do it. And uh, so, John, in addition to shooting, I guess he'll be spending the next couple months at uh, watching his Vegas nights. You are a... Uh, oh, man. I, I mean, we're starting uh, in, uh, in just a couple weeks. How did you get... Well, let me say this. How did you get... I get it. I know how it worked and you got the players, but as a Philadelphia Flyers fan, and I mean, long suffering doesn't do it justice, John. I mean, we haven't done, we haven't done shit since 75, right? You know, and Vegas comes in and within two or three years, you're one of the top five teams in the league. Yeah. Well, first season we made it to the cup, which is really unbelievable. Crazy. And, you know, they called our team, the misfits, you know, we, we were all players that nobody wanted. Everybody released. And, you know, the way franchise teams work, every team has to put some players up that they don't protect that can be taken. So all these guys were unprotected players and they called themselves the misfits. But, you know, uh, something very powerful happened about a week before that season started. And that was the October massacre. And that happened a week before the first home game of the Golden Knights. And and, John's uh, talking about the shooting at the MGM, right? At the, the concert, right. the GM. Right. Jesus. Yep. Yeah. So when that season started, there were hundreds of people in the hospital. I mean, it was a huge ordeal. And how do we go have fun? So, so I mean, the entire city, we were all just devastated. So, so you know, the, the Golden Knights found a way to create a memorial event before every game. 
They'd bring out first responders. They'd bring out family members. They would tell a story. They would this, so that when you went to a game, you got your mourning out of the way. You got your emotions out of the way. And then they could start the game and you didn't feel guilty when you enjoyed the game. They found this unbelievable balance in the way they did it then. But then what happened is, you know, there's a, there's a special on Netflix called Gal, Galliant. Okay. And it's a special. Please watch it. It's a special on the night's first season. It's called Galliant on Netflix. Oh, no, it's on Amazon <clears throat> called Galliant. And it's a, it's a documentary on their first season. Because of what had happened, that team went on the ice in those games and said, we cannot lose. This city needs and something just very powerful happened that season that ignited these guys past their, their own abilities. And that film really highlights it. You'll enjoy watching it. There's no arena in the NHL that has this energy that's going on there. Yeah, it's total Vegas. And the way that we produce the game with special effects and lighting and lasers. Incredible. And, yeah, they take it to the next level. Let me know when you're coming into town next. I'll take you to a game. I'm in. Well, I will be there soon. Uh, and we'll talk about this in two seconds after we let you go. John Taffer, great to see you, my friend. And uh, look for the new season of of a bar rescue coming after football season. And you might even see me on there. You never know. <laughs> Thanks, John. Take care, buddy. We're going to give daddy the rain man suite. Do you dig that? We're going to Vegas, Mike. Vegas. Vegas. You think we get there by midnight? Money, we're going to be up 500 by midnight. Yeah, Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas. That's going to do it for this episode of the show. Many thanks to John Taffer for joining us. Of course, as always, I want to thank you. I know you've got a lot of options out there in terms of what you can be listening to so many podcasts, so little time. You've chosen to hang with me, and I appreciate it. I invite you to follow me on Instagram at the Imbiber Podcast. Also, as an Instagram account, WWD underscore podcast. And now, as I want to do, I'll leave you with a joke. Man walks into a bar, sits down, he looks up, he notices three pieces of meat hanging from the ceiling. He says to the bartender, Hey, what's with the meat? The bartender says, if you can jump up and slap all three pieces of meat at once, you get free drinks for an hour. But if you miss even one, you got to pay for everyone else's drinks for the rest of the night. You want to give it a go? Man takes another look up at the meat and he says, nah, I'll pass. The stakes are too high. (laughs) I know. Bye, everybody. (laughs) 